0: Wendy and team, thank you for leading us and for jumping up and down and back and forth. And every time we change things, it confuses all of us. We know that story tells us that this man was sick and he was getting sicker. We don't know exactly what was wrong with him. We're never told in John chapter 11 what was wrong. We're just told that a man named Lazarus was sick. Lazarus' sisters, Martha and Mary, were growing more and more concerned about what was going on. So they sent word to their friend, Jesus, that Lazarus was going downhill. They sent word that he was getting sicker, but tied to that word was no real request. It's not uncommon that when word would get sent to Jesus like this or when people would come to Jesus like this, that they would have a request, a request that Jesus would come and do something. And these friends didn't ask anything of Jesus. They just told Jesus that his friend was getting sicker. Now, even though there's not a request, I wonder if there was one assumed. Because the message says that not just that Lazarus was sick, but that Lazarus, whom you love, Lazarus, who you care about, was sick. It, John mentions a couple of verses later that Jesus really loved these siblings, these three, Martha and Mary and Lazarus. So the, the depth of their relationship is revealed to us. And, and I wonder, it's never shown clearly until a little bit later, but if everyone assumed when the message showed up that tied to it was an assumption, an assumption that Jesus would come... That Jesus would rush to them. That Jesus would bring rescue their way. That Jesus would spare their pain. Instead, John chapter 11 tells us that Jesus waited for two days before he did anything. Actually, before he went to them. I wish... So badly That I could read Jesus mind in this moment What was he thinking I wish we could see the two days I I wish that John had told us the story of those two days What did he do for two days What did he do while he waited Seemingly intentionally before going What was going on in those moments N.T. Wright assumes that Jesus was deep in prayer during those two days. That he was deep in prayer, asking for the will of the Father, praying that the Father would move in incredible ways, praying for what would come and could come. But the reality is, we're left to wonder. We don't know what happened. We don't know why he waited. We just know that he waited. And then, against the advice of the disciples, we find that Jesus did begin to make this move towards Lazarus. He began to journey towards Bethany. The disciples weren't too excited about this decision because just days beforehand, in that same area, there were people who had tried to stone Jesus to death. So they weren't very excited about moving back into that tumultuous situation. They believed, perhaps, that the risk was too great I think they cared about Lazarus and Mary and Martha, so I, I, again, wish I could read their minds. Why would they stop him? I know there was risk, but what is it that they thought could happen or should happen? Maybe they assumed that Lazarus was already dead. Jesus hadn't gone before, so why the rush now? Maybe they believed that there was something that Jesus could do from where they were. He had worked long-distance miracles in the past. Maybe they believed that he could do something and that he wouldn't have to go back and risk his own life. I honestly think they were more concerned about their lives than his life, but they said they were concerned about his life. They tried to discourage him from going, but Jesus went anyway. And when he got near Bethany, near Bethany not yet to the house, but just outside of town, he was told that Lazarus had already died, that he was already in the grave. That people were gathering around the home of Mary and Martha in order to console them. Martha heard that Jesus had finally come, that he was just outside of town. And rather than waiting with the crowds for him to show up at the house, Martha, in very Martha fashion, if you've read about Martha and other stories, rushed out of the house and rushed to Jesus. She wasn't waiting on him to show up. She went out to confront him. Where were you? We sent word. You knew he was getting worse. He was dying and you didn't come. Jesus, where were you? We counted on you. We thought you could save him. How could you let us down like this? Jesus tried to console her with... Promises that something great was on the horizon, that something was happening, that something was taking place, even if she didn't yet understand or see it or know what was going on. And we see this glimpse into Martha's faith as Jesus has the conversation about him being the resurrection and the life. He says, Martha, do you believe this? And she responds with, "Yes, of course, I believe this and, and in this glimpse, we find out that it probably wasn 't just because Jesus was their friend that they 'd sent him the message. they believed there was something unique about this man. they believed there was something special. She believed, and I think they believed the siblings, all three believed that this was the Messiah, that Jesus was of God, that as they sent him word, he was more than a teacher, he had power over life and death they Believed that he could do something amazing, which is the entire reason that they had sent him word. She didn't fully understand yet what was taking place, but she believed that Jesus could do amazing things. And while we hear that proclamation a little later in the story, we watch as her faith stumbles just a bit, as her confidence is shaken. Before we get there, the passage tells us that she sent for her sister. She sent for Mary, who was still at the house with others, and Mary rushed out to come and meet Jesus. And when she did, others followed after her, not sure where she was going, wondering if she was going to the grave, so they went alongside her. And she got to Jesus, and we watch as a slightly different interaction takes place. We see the different personalities of these two sisters Martha, the confronter, Martha, uh, the activist, the worker. And Mary, the one who's more honest and sincere with some of the emotions that she's facing, with some of the pain that's going on, simply comes and falls at Jesus' feet. Broken. Believing that if Jesus had been there, he could have done something. And in the very next... Thing that takes place is what I believe is one of the most beautiful moments in the entire life of Jesus. Verse 11, I'm sorry, verse 35 of chapter 11, it says this, it says, then Jesus wept. Man. Man. In that moment, we see the humanity of Jesus in all its fullness. And yet there is so much more than that going on. This is more than just Jesus because he's human, grieving, because his friends are grieving, because something's difficult. This is more than just the humanity of Jesus being revealed to us. N.T. Wright, a great New Testament scholar, he says this. He says, John is telling us something much more striking. That when we look at Jesus... Not least when we look at Jesus in tears, we're seeing not just a flesh and blood human being, but the Word made flesh. Which is what John chapter 1 tells us about Jesus. The Word through whom the worlds were made weeps like a baby at the grave of his friend. Only when we stop and ponder this will we understand the full mystery of John's gospel. Only when we put away our high and dry pictures of who God is and replace them with pictures in which the Word, who is God, can cry with the world's crying will we discover what the Word, God, really means. The Son of God wept. Jesus, God in the flesh, was heartbroken for his friends. He knew what was coming, and even in knowing what was next, he didn't stop the emotion of the moment, the pain of the moment, the grief of the moment from rising up to the surface. From allowing the emotion that was in his soul. The New Living talks about it being anger. Other translations talk about it being compassion. This overwhelming emotion that was coming out of God in the flesh was revealed for them to see. The suffering of those people that Jesus loved meant something to Jesus. It was significant. Their suffering meant something to God. So God joined them in their suffering. let me make a point. It's a bit of a side point with regards to where we're going. But we have to hear it as we look at this passage. and, And I need you to hear this. Grieving is right. Grieving is an appropriate behavior. It's an appropriate emotion. It is an appropriate response. Even for those who are followers of Jesus. Somewhere along the way, we have gotten this idea that if we're Christ followers, we shouldn't grieve. We shouldn't feel or show pain in those ways. And there is no biblical evidence to argue that. As a matter of fact, the clearest evidence I can find anywhere is right here when we're told that Jesus grieved. So in our own lives, when we lose a spouse, we should grieve. When a relationship ends, no matter what that relationship was, there should be grieving connected to that. When a dream fades, grieving is appropriate. When a heart is broken, for whatever reason, grieving is a right response. This idea that anything different should happen is bogus. It's not true. It's a lie. And it damages us in the long run. Jesus wept. And we should too. And what is different about us is that we then wrestle with the question of how do we get beyond our grief? Because we don't get to stay there. How do we get beyond our grief? In a story, we're not even sure that the tears had dried on Jesus' face yet when he asked to be shown to the grave. They took him to the place where Lazarus was buried and he commanded that the stone be rolled away while there were questions from all these onlookers. What's he doing? What's he thinking? Couldn't he have stopped this if he'd just been here in the first place? But Jesus continued to move forward with what he was doing. Martha asked this question about the the smell, the odor, the stench of death that will come from the grave because the body has been there now for four days. This is where we see her face stagger for a moment. She believed that Jesus could do incredible things, but she wasn't sure he could do this. She wasn't sure he knew what was happening. She wasn't sure he was able to go quite this far. But we read as Jesus called Lazarus from the grave. He did so publicly. When he prayed, he said, I'm praying aloud. There's that weird little aside where he says, I know I don't actually have to pray aloud for everybody to hear it, but I want them to know what's going on. He he prays aloud so that those who are around, those who are present can understand what is happening and how it's happening, how this is taking place. He modeled what it looked like to trust that God could do the impossible. From the very first moment that Jesus had gotten word that Lazarus was getting sicker, from the very beginning, he said that something was coming, something was happening. All the way back in verse 4, we see Jesus say, Lazarus' sickness will not end in death. No, it happened for the glory of God so that the Son of God will receive glory from this. Friends, the story tells us that Lazarus was dead, completely dead, but that by the power of God... The Messiah raised him from death to life. Now there's a whole whirlwind of emotions and questions that are taking place in this story. There's all kinds of places we could go and questions we could ask. There's things that I, as I read the passage, even wrestle with and wonder about and, and 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 even debate God on is this what's happening? Is this what's taking place God? Why is this the process? Why is this what is taking place? We watch as we see fear and then hope and then disappointment and then sadness and grief and then doubt and then faith and then all oh, that this miracle had happened. All All of these emotions welled up in all of the people that are watching this take place, that are hearing Jesus' words, that are seeing Lazarus first dead and then walking out of the grave. So what do we do with the story? And my hope is that this morning, this story can be one that offers us hope. My hope is that this story can be one that builds our faith, one that builds in us a deeper commitment to the ways of Christ and the things that that Jesus is doing. And most specifically. To the things that Jesus is doing in and through Valley. That we can see the new life that is here. Church, sometimes we don't talk about all of this. But we, as the body, have seen difficult days. Many of us have suffered significant deaths. Deaths of people that we loved. Some of us, deaths of Dreams of the kind of church that we thought was coming or thought would happen or we thought that we would be. Some of us have suffered through the death of ministries that we valued, that we appreciated, that still today we grieve having lost them. Some of us have seen the death of relationships. Friends, loved ones, people we cared about who are no longer here or who we no longer have interaction with because some of the battles of our past have scarred some so significantly that we can't figure out how to restore those broken relationships. Sometimes we've even seen the deaths of faith. People whose faith has died as they have walked through the difficulty of what has taken place. Among us or in their own lives, people have left and they've been uninterested in a faith that looks anything like that. And sometimes as we've walked through these deaths, as we've seen these pains and these difficulties, there was a stench that remained. There was a smell that continued to be alive in the room the smell of death surrounded us and you could see it in our conversations. You could see it in the ways in which we interacted with one another. You could see it in the ways in which we debated it with one another. You could see it kind of Existing just on the outside of each of us, just on the edges of where we were and what we were doing, of what we hoped to be. The reality is, Valley, as we think about us and who we've been as a family and as an organization, death has plagued us and left many of us broken. And in the process of that, some of us wrestled with questions. Questions of our own, questions about how Jesus could let this happen to a church that we love so much. How could Jesus allow this people to become so broken? How could proclaimed Christ followers act this way among one another? Some of us ask the question, should we stay or should we go? Should we continue to be a part of this? Some of us have perhaps even come to the place that we've doubted our own faith. Because sometimes what we find is that when you see nasty church situations, you begin to wonder if God is just as nasty. And if he is, you don't want anything to do with it. The church or the God that 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 represents. Others of us, as we've wrestled with our doubts and our questions, our fears and our struggles, we've come to a place that we've been unwilling to bring others into this mess. Not sure what it might do to them, or what it might do to their faith, or how it might not actually help them, but harm them in some way. And all along the way, asking those questions, how is this possible? How could Jesus let this happen? Jesus, where were you? And those of you who are here and are listening and are wondering some about what it is that we're talking about, that's, that's okay. Many churches have walked through some tough and some difficult days. Many churches have seen some pain. And if perhaps the pain of Valley is not a pain that you know specifically, this idea of pain, of suffering, of loss, of difficulty, whether it be in a church, in a faith community, or in your own life, it's probably not that hard for you to relate to. You have probably walked through death in some way. And sometimes the stench has lingered for too long. I actually think that the characters in the story were asking some of the same questions of Jesus. Some of those same questions that perhaps we have asked about our family, that we have asked about our own suffering, about our own difficulty. The disciples. They wanted to know why Jesus didn't go to Lazarus, and then they wanted to know why he did. Martha wanted to know where was Jesus when they needed him the most. Mary asked the question, couldn't this have all been prevented, Jesus? Couldn't you have stopped this from happening? The community that was around them began to question Jesus' commitment to his actual friends. And I wonder if they began to, to, to question his ability. Could he actually do these things? Was he all he'd claim to be if he was? Why didn't he come to this? All these other things he's supposed to be able to do. Why didn't he take care of this? Maybe he wasn't able after all. But after the questions, after the doubts, after all of the disappointments, even after the miracle... Then what? What comes next? In the story? In our story? In your life? Lazarus died. And they all grieved. Including Jesus. And then, Jesus brought Lazarus into new life. The impossible was made possible. Jesus showed in that action, he did actually care about what was going on. He did care about his friend. Jesus did all that they hoped for and more. Jesus brought about new life. Friends, we have seen death and the stench That it leaves behind. But we have also seen miraculous new life rise up among us. We, as a church, have seen incredible new life come about. We have seen and watched and been able to recognize that Jesus wasn't finished with us. Even as we walk through dark and difficult days, Jesus wasn't finished working incredible things. Jesus was waiting to do something amazing, something miraculous, to do all that we hoped for and more. Jesus brought new life among us. Church... Literally, Jesus has done that in Valley. Look around and notice. Literally, babies born into the church in the last few years. Literally, new families who have decided to come and be a part of what Valley is doing just in the last few years. Cal and I were counting the other day and come up with five or six or eight or ten in the last year alone who have come and decided to become a part of Valley. They've seen that life was here and decided that they wanted to come and journey forward with us, with this family, with these people. We've seen life as in just the last few years we've become more and more committed to our missions partners. We've been to Africa twice in the last three years. We've become primary financial supporters for Impact One Initiative in Zambia, for InterVarsity at Goucher, for Grace Life taking place at Towson. We've deeply committed to the work of the gospel among our neighbors and the nations. We've seen more and more faith decisions taking place among us. Every year, more and more of them for the last few years. More and more baptisms taking place. We are watching as Jesus is doing incredible new things. And even in our own lives, so many of us could give testimony to the Holy Spirit Spirit working in ways we've never experienced before. Jesus is alive and working in us. Jesus is stirring new life in our soul. Jesus is bringing transformation in our own souls. And this is miraculous. And yes, there are questions and there are pains and we have to wrestle with that and understand what is it that was happening? What is it that was going on? And I think the scriptures show us something that's incredibly important for us to understand. Are you ready? Somebody's asleep next to you. Just jab them a little bit. I promise we're getting there. Over and over again, we find in the scriptures that in order for new life to happen, something has to die. We have to suffer through deaths in order to experience new life. It's shown to us over and over and over again. The new life that was offered to creation demanded that Jesus die and rise to new life. The idea of of us becoming Christians and following after Jesus demands that we die to our old life, that we die to the sin that has been in us, that we die to those motivations and choose instead to follow after the Savior. Lazarus had to die in order to experience new life. Now, he could have been saved from ever dying. Jesus could have come along and kept him from getting to that place and stopped that illness. But that would not have allowed Lazarus to experience new life. That would have brought him back to the old life. That would have brought him back to the life that he already knew before. But in order for him to experience new life, he had to walk through death. First, And the reality is that that new life wasn't just new life for him. The death that they suffered wasn't only for Lazarus. It was for Lazarus and his sisters. It was for the disciples and their community. All of them watched this take place and suffered through this death so that they could experience new life. This was the penultimate sign of Jesus as Messiah. Second only to his own death and resurrection was that Jesus allowed Lazarus to die so that he could raise him from the grave. And notice the effect. Notice what happened in Lazarus' new life. In chapter 12, verses nine, starting in verse 9, it says this. When all the people heard of Jesus' arrival, they flocked to see him and also to see Lazarus, the man Jesus had raised from the dead. Then the leading priests, they were so upset, not just at Jesus, but now at Lazarus also. Then the leading priests decided to kill Lazarus too. For it was because of him that many of the people had deserted them and believed in Jesus. Friends, we find out that in this story, people are coming to follow Jesus because Lazarus was living new life. It wasn't just because of what Jesus had done. It wasn't just because of what they'd seen in him. They weren't coming and talking about, whoa, Lazarus was dead before. They weren't talking about his tomb. They were talking about the new life that this man was living. The life that he was living that was so transformed, so different, so new, so incredible that they wanted to follow Jesus because of what Jesus had done done to Lazarus, but Lazarus had to choose new life. Jesus called him out of the tomb. Jesus spoke, Lazarus, come out of the tomb, but Lazarus had to choose to walk forward. Lazarus had to choose to come out grave clothes and all. He had to choose to come out and remove the grave clothes he had to choose to walk forward and leave behind the despair and the stench of death. And sometimes we get caught in the idea of, well, of course he did. Obviously he made that decision, but he, he didn't have to. He could have stayed in despair. He could have stayed angry. He could have continued to wonder and to question, Jesus, where were you? I needed you and you didn't bother showing up. But instead, he chose to walk in a new life. He chose to leave behind the despair and the stench. He chose to live into the hope and the possibility of new life. Friends, are you and I willing to choose the new life that Jesus has offered? Are you and I willing to choose to take hold of it, to walk in and to commit fully and to leave behind the despair and the devastation and the stench and the damage of the past? To decide that we have been offered something new and we want it. And we're going to take hold and we're going to walk into it and we're going to choose it. Is it stirring in us? Is it moving in us? There is despair and there's brokenness that we've seen and we've experienced. Some of it spoken and much of it hidden. Much of it disguised and pretended as if it isn't even there. You remember that whole grief thing? We've come to the idea that we're supposed to hide the grief of our past. The pain of our past. The suffering of our past. Nope. Jesus gave us a completely different model and example. We need to grieve fully, wholeheartedly, with all of our hearts. Grieve and let the pain come to the surface and be open and visible. And then learn how to walk beyond our grief, to leave it behind and choose new life. Because friends, new life changes the world. But only if you and I choose to walk in it. Only if you and I choose to receive it. Only if we allow it to stir in us, to move in us, to spread in us. Listen to me. Are you convinced that Jesus has offered new life to Valley? Are you convinced that Jesus has offered new life to you? I have to confess, we've been here four and a half years now. It'll be five in February. It was five years ago, real close to now, that we were kind of coming out and being around you for the first time. And I have to confess that there have been times in those five years that I wasn't certain. Times that I was not certain that we would get past the difficulties of our past. Times that I was unsure if we could survive the death that we had seen. If we would ever leave behind the despair and the pain. If we could ever make it to the other side. If we were ever going to be possible to come out of the grave and live new life. But today, I am absolutely convinced that Jesus has offered new life to us. Not just new life to you and me as individuals, but new life to valley. And it is time that we leave behind the stench of death and choose new life. It is time that we leave behind the pain and the suffering of the past. The brokenness of hoping that our old life will be resurrected. Old lives don't get resurrected. Ever. New lives get resurrected. And it is time for you and I to believe wholeheartedly that we have been offered new life. It is time for us to walk into new life, to answer the call as Jesus has called us from the grave, and to walk forward. But friends, new life isn't easy. New life is really, really hard. It's beautiful, but it requires of us new sacrifices and new commitments. It requires of us new pains and new difficulties. As we think about new life as a church, it means that you and I are so deeply committed to what's happening in this church, this family, the bride of Christ that is Valley, that we give boldly of our finances, of our time, of our resources, of our commitments. Because we're convinced new life is happening here. And we have to be deeply committed to this. We are in and we are wholeheartedly in. With our money, with our time, with our gifts, with our talents, with our abilities. With our willingness to build relationships with people we like and people we don't. Because we have new life right here. And if we live... New life. We will see it begin to affect our world. Our communities and our families. Our neighbors and our schools. Our neighborhoods and our city. Because they will see that new life is happening here. Church, can they see new life in us? Like in chapter 12, are they coming to Jesus? Are they flocking to Jesus? Not just because of Jesus, but because they see new life in valley. Friends, are we living new life? Are we a church resurrected? Because that's the call of the gospel. That's the promise of hope. That is our chance for new life. I'm going. I'm in. Will you come with me? Pray with me, would you? Jesus, show us the promise of new life. Show us the vision that you have for our lives as individuals and for our lives as a church. Jesus, call us from the grave. And then, Holy Spirit, empower us. Give us courage and strength to choose to walk out, to rip off the grave clothes, and to pursue new life. Change the world by allowing them to see that we are a church resurrected. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. We're going to take some time over the next few moments to sing some songs of worship together. And as we do so, we want to allow you the opportunity to do a couple things. First, to spend time reflecting. To spend time listening, what is it that God is calling you to walk out of? What death have you walked through? What pain, what suffering, what stench of death have you allowed to remain for far too long in your life, in your soul, in your faith? Listen as the Holy Spirit clarifies what it is. And in church... respond get up and walk away leave it behind leave the death at the tomb and let us journey into new life together new life in our jobs and our schools and our families new life as a church resurrected but we offer you these moments these moments to listen and these moments to respond to the voice of God stirring and moving in you it's possible this morning that you can't find your way there I'm sorry. Let me scratch that whole last half a sentence that I got out. It is impossible for you to walk from that place into the new life that you have been called to walk into alone. Not it's possible. It is impossible for you to get there alone. You need Jesus and the power of the Holy Spirit. You also need the body to surround you and walk forward with you. perhaps this morning what you need is someone to pray with you to release the chains of death that still have you captured to leave behind the stench so that you can walk in a new life so Cal and I will be here we're going to spend a moment or two here actually facing you, uh, letting you know that we are here and we are ready and available, if others come and we need to grab some other leaders we'll do so If your response is that you need to be prayed for, come and allow us to pray for you. If it's that you just need to come and pray at the altar, come and do so. Church, leave behind the grave today. Let's be done with it. And let's walk in a new life. Take this time to listen to the voice of God.